Hey there, and welcome to episode 105 of the Liam McCullum Show. I've taken some time off. Um, I, as many of you know, I was uh, lobbying at the Montana Capitol on Defend the Guard, as well as uh, working in a part-time lobbying gig with Americans for Prosperity. Um, and it was hard to record weekly, but I was also hosting um, the Mises Caucus's Decentralized Revolution podcast. Uh, I was doing their Ask an Austrian series as well as their Decentralized Revolution interview series. And I'm going to take that on now and try to do it weekly. Um, and I've now done multiple Ask an Austrian podcasts with people like Walter Block, Jonathan Newman, Patrick Newman, and a few others, Pear Island. Um, and it's been awesome. Uh, we also did one with Gene Epstein, who I've had on the podcast before. Uh, and now I'm doing interview-based podcasts like I would with the Liam McCollum Show. So I think I'm going to start uploading those episodes here um, and, and kind of use this platform as well to promote the Mises Caucuses podcast, at least for now. And then when I get uh, my schedule under wraps, um, maybe I'll get to a point where I'm also releasing podcasts independently of the Mises Caucus. But for now... Um, I want everyone to go over and follow LP Mises Caucus on YouTube and every other platform. We're also uploading our interviews to Twitter now, um, and we have a pretty big presence there. Uh, so yeah, in, in the meantime, I'm going to be uploading my interviews that I do through the caucus um, to this RSS feed, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you eventually go over and, and listen to their other interviews and other podcasts that we're going to be hosting over there. Um, there's going to be like a panel like uh, Tim Pool style podcast with Michael Heiss and Aaron Harris. Um, Aaron has been hosting the Decentralized Revolution interview series for a while now, but I'm going to take that over and I'll be interviewing people about articles, books uh, and things like that. Um, but I had the opportunity to interview Dan McKnight about the Defend the Guard effort here in Montana. Um, and I just wanted to ask him about what we, how he thought we did. And um, I wanted him to address some of the counter arguments that we heard from the opposition when we brought the bill forward in Montana. So uh, I never did an update episode on the Defend the Guard effort. Um, I worked very hard to organize this effort. And we, we had a, a very broad coalition of, of people from the Freedom Caucus, uh, people in the GOP, um, to the ACLU. We had some Democrats in support. And then obviously we had a lot of support from people in the Libertarian Party and the Mises Caucus. And I, I'm very happy uh, to be one of the people that organized this effort and to, to uh, have connected with Diego Rivera and Dan McKnight, who you'll hear from shortly. Uh, it, it was such a privilege um, and I just wanted to be able to update you on that process. I, I wanted to be able to record during all of that effort and, and kind of give you an, a step-by-step -step, uh, update, but I just, I really um, leaned into it and, and hardly did anything else other than my job and uh, organizing for that effort. And I think it really paid off. Um, so yeah, let's let's just get into this. Here's the recording um, for Decentralized Revolution with Dan McKnight. 
to episode 109 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Lee McCollum and I'm your host. And today's guest is Dan McKnight. You know him. He's the chairman of Bring Our Troops Home, which is pushing Defend the Guard legislation across the country. We've had him on the show before, but the movement is gaining steam. So I wanted to bring him on to talk about it. Um, I also had the privilege to be able to work with Dan on the bill in Montana. So uh, I asked him to come on to discuss our efforts and address some of the arguments we heard from the opposition here. I, I first discovered the Defend the Guard Act years ago when I was in my honor civics class in high school. And funny enough, the, the teacher of that class uh, is now actually the representative that carried the bill in the Montana legislature. So we talk a little bit about him. And then uh, we, we were able to get the bill passed through committee and we became the first state to ever debate the bill on the floor of a um, legislative chamber and then receive a vote. And it did fail by only 11 votes, but then we brought it back again on the Senate side. And even though we we didn't get it passed and signed into law, I, I consider these huge victories. So yeah, I, I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan McKnight. I'm, I'm very happy to have you on today. It's good to be here. It's good to see you again. Yeah, well, I like I said, it, it was a real privilege to be able to work with you on this bill this last session. I, I was on the ground in Montana um, trying to get this bill presented and I encountered your work years ago and then finally had the opportunity to interview you on my own podcast. And then um, now here we are today uh, actually getting to work together on this bill. Um, but to kind of introduce you and, and your story, why don't you talk about your ideological background, how you went from being a soldier to someone who uh, woke up to the ideas of uh, non-interventionism. Sure. My path uh, in the uh, political arena is fairly short, but uh, it's also quite lengthy. I, I grew up in a very uh, political household in Idaho where my grandfather in the 1970s ran on a right to work platform. First in the first one in the West, uh, he lost his campaign for the state Senate. And my dad was a, uh, a union electrical uh Union electrician. He was the steward of his own local union. And so my dad and my grandpa were at odds over this, the right to work issue. And so I was raised in this political uh, uh, hotbed. Uh, my dad eventually was converted to the kind of the liberty movement and saw uh, the evils of big labor and became the chairman of the Idaho Right to Work Committee. And through that at work, I met some incredible people, <clears throat> including a, a dear friend of mine, Gary, who, uh, who was the champion of right to work for 50 years. And uh, he's uh, nearing the end stages of his life right now. And he's, uh, he kind of brought me into this movement. Now he called me one day and said, Dan, I know how you feel about politics. I know about your anger and frustration of the uh, endless wars that you served in. You want to do something about it? And uh, I listened to him and we started this organization um, with the purpose of influencing a, a senator from Idaho, Jim Risch, who had, I had a long and storied history with uh, in my time in the military. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, he was our governor of Idaho and the commander in chief of the Idaho Army National Guard. And I had, had to reach out to him with a satellite phone from deep in the Pesh River Valley in Afghanistan, asking him for help, for supplies, for boots, goggles, gloves for the soldiers. And uh, so when he became a senator, he, came, he eventually became the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. And uh, Gary and I devised this idea where we could um, influence a senator from a relatively small state of Idaho who had a relatively overinflated position of power in foreign policy 
And uh, we started this, this movement, this organization called Bring Our Troops Home. And our, our focus originally was in Washington, D.C., in the swamp. And we were going to try and convince our congressmen and our senators if they just knew the right things, if they just knew about the Constitution, if they just read the Constitution, then they would surely bring us home from these undeclared wars. And we learned in about 10 seconds that that's not the case. They don't care. Uh, Washington, D.C. is lost. Uh, it's a swamp. And we decided to refocus our efforts where we had the most effect, where we could reach out and touch our, our representatives in, in, our, in the state legislatures, people that uh, we go to church with, people that we see at the grocery store, whose children play on the same sports teams that represent us in the state legislatures. And we brought a movement back to the states called Defend the Guard. And it's basically legislation, uh, state level, 10th Amendment based legislation that's built on uh, the militia clause of the Constitution that says that the National Guards of the states will not be released into federal service to fight in overseas war unless it's been declared by Congress, and which is, we all know is a requirement by uh, in the Constitution. And we are now in over 40 states. Uh, we got into 19 states formally introduced this year alone. And uh, Montana is a place in history now because of the work that you did and that Representative Deming did. By the way, there's Lee right over here on my shoulder. He's a real American hero. Um, uh, the work that you guys did in Montana, you were the first to pass it through a body of, of the legislature in the House, actually the committee um, um, in Montana. And uh, because of the grassroots efforts and the work that we did, um, it got through and uh, got to a floor debate, which was one of the most storied and uh, unbelievable floor debates that I've ever seen in, in a state legislature. Some of the things that were said in support and in opposition of the bill uh, will never leave my soul. And uh, I can't wait to talk about some of those things. Yeah. And I think actually the, the record that we made in Defend the Guard history was that we were the first state to actually debate it on a floor in one of the chambers within the legislature. And it had had previously passed in the Arizona um, committee. I believe it was a Senate committee. And then we were the second. Yeah. And then we were the second state to pass it through a committee, but then to hear it on on the floor. And it was debated once and then it failed by only 11 votes, um, which was impressive. And and the votes ended up being, I think the, the vote was 60 to 40 and the majority of Republicans voted in favor of it and only two Democrats voted for it, um, which which was really surprising. I mean, the Democrats, you know, have consistently claimed to be the anti-war party, but within like the last 10 years or so, uh, they have really switched. And I can't really even get into um, the psychology behind it. I, I, I don't understand what is animating uh, Democrats and why they why they choose to not vote in favor of this. Because in, in Hawaii, I know that it was a Democrat who um, presented the bill. Do you have any insights into why uh, Democrats might not be in support of this bill? Uh, because now conservative right-leaning uh, veterans support it. It's That's plain and simple. It's a, it is a political football and they see that there's games to be won and ground to be gained by opposing anything conservative, libertarian, right of center. Uh, the, the left has always been an oppressive party, always, uh, even though they were they were right on their anti-war position of the 60s and 70s. And uh, another Idaho Senator Frank Church was was right you know, to oppose the Vietnam War and put an end to it in his committee. But the left has historically been an authoritarian party. And the military industrial complex and the uniparty in Washington, D.C. is it's all about authority, position and power. And he who who wields all the money wields all the power. 
And right now, uh, the defense contractors, the military industrial complex, the big war party is the party of power, whether it's Republican or Democrat. And we've, we've seen all across the country that it's not just Democrats that oppose this bill. It's also the establishment Republicans. And that's where the, where, where the political lines blur. Establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats are the same party. There's no difference. You couldn't pick them out in a lineup. You couldn't tell by their voting records, by their positions, by the books on their shelves. They are the same. And, uh, you know, Dale uh, Kobayashi, representative in, in Hawaii, a, a really moderate Democrat, uh, was our sponsor of this bill for years <clears throat> before he was beat by an establishment handpicked replacement. And, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard's dad was in the state Senate in Hawaii, and he was a supporter and uh, we know through conversations with Tulsi herself as a, you know, a former Democrat that she was in support of it. And Representative Andy Clifford, a Democrat in Montana or in Wyoming, just to your south, she was a sponsor of the bill in Wyoming. Uh, one of uh, only a handful of Democrats even serving in the Wyoming legislature. And she proudly and boldly stood up for it. So th there are Democrats that as long as they're not considered mainstream, um, you know, establishment Democrats that would support the bill. And, you know, when the, when the fringes, of both parties are in agreement on something, you know you're onto a movement because those are the folks that aren't about power. They're not about the establishment. They're not about the status quo. They're about what's right and wrong. And we saw that in uh, Washington, D.C. in February at the Rage Against the War Machine rally. Uh, people I would most likely never associate with, uh, wouldn't hang out with, I have nothing in common with. We were all there in lockstep, thousands and thousands of us for one reason, uh, to oppose the war and especially the war in Ukraine and when you get to share a stage with a with a lefty commie like uh, Jimmy Dore, who I have tons of respect for, but he is socially he is he's he's as liberal as they come. But we stood lockstep side by side in, in with the same message that uh, if we're going to go to war, it needs to be for a purpose. It needs to be declared and it needs to be considerate, thoughtful and it needs to be very limited. And so, yeah, the the, the left is no longer the doves that they used to be. Uh, they're just as hawkish. You know, Barack Obama was the drone commander in chief. And uh, so we've seen those tides turn. And now the Republican Party is starting to really come around. And the Libertarian Party is taking a lead on this, that it's not just anti-war to be anti-war. We're not hate Ashbury, you know, San Francisco hippies of the 1960s and 70s. I mean, I still maintain a little bit of a military haircut, what's left of it, right? There's not much here, but still maintain fitness. I, we, we don't have the long ponytails. We're not, um, you know, we're not like the, the, the anti-war protests of the 70s. We're veterans who served who still maintain that we haven't been relieved of our duty, right? Our fifth general order is that I will not, uh, I will not quit my post until I'm properly relieved. And uh, no one's relieved me. No one has told me I could take my hand down from that oath that I swore to the Constitution. And uh, we're we're mostly right of center, right leaning. Um, I wouldn't say we're all conservative, but we're right leaning veterans. And we've stood up and said enough is enough. 22, 23 years of endless undeclared war, uh, and on a bigger picture, 80 years of undeclared war. It's time for us to do it right. So on the on the point of Democrats uh, just voting against Republicans on this issue, I, th I think it's very uh, true, especially in, in Montana. I had one Democrat who who was in leadership tell me that the reason they didn't support the bill was because there was a whereas within the bill that quoted Thomas Jefferson. They said that they did not support Jefferson because uh, Jefferson owned slaves. And that was their argument. And I'm like, OK, you do understand that the whereas has nothing to do with the law. It, it is not the controlling part of the bill. And he still wouldn't get behind it. So because it was tailored to a Republican 
you know, audience and uh, it, it made constitutional arguments. They opposed it. And I really hope to start on the Democrats early next time, because I think that if we had only had, you know, half of the Democrats, this, this would have passed. And if, if we started that conversation early and didn't make it seem as partisan, I, I think that we really could have passed it through the House in Montana. Um, and I want to get to those arguments that, that we heard um, on, on the floor. There were some really fascinating ones, some technical ones, and then also some some moral arguments, just some disagreements about the, the role of the military and, and the posture of the United States on the world stage. Um, it, are there any arguments that stood out to you that, that surprised you this go around in Montana? Uh, in the committee hearing first, the, the one that caught me off guard that I, 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 I know in my heart, I believed it. I just never thought I would hear it out loud was when uh, the adjutant general from, from Montana, General Peronic, Ronick, am I saying that right? H-R-O-N-E-K, Ronick? I think it's Ronick. Ronick. <laughs> it's ironic. Uh, he said, I'm not here um, to get into a legal debate. Fair. That's, that, that's actually, I believe that statement. The general should be there to carry out the wishes of the people through the executive branch. He shouldn't have been there at all. Walking in in his uniform with his ribbons, whether he's earned them or not, um, and to testify against a piece of legislation that's being put forth by the people's body, by the legislature, uh, is an absolute violation of his right, responsibility, and authority as, a, as a, the adjutant general of Montana. So to say I'm not going to get into a legal debate, it shows you that he knows that the merits of the bill are right, and he can't argue that. And they would argue the same thing we always hear, jobs and money, jobs and money, jobs and money. Well, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, and and, uh, and Lee on the floor and in committee made an incredible argument when he pulled out the dollar bill, right, and held it up to the body and said, how many of these, how many of these are worth the lives of one Montana National Guardsman who dies in a war of choice that hasn't been declared and properly by the people's representatives in Washington, D.C.? And uh, so that, that one on the, on, in the committee really stung me when, when the general said that. I never thought I'd hear it out loud, but I knew that I believed that that's what they thought. On the floor, though, the one that was probably um, the most offensive uh, was Representative Wayne Rusk when he stood up and said, uh, in essence, that this bill is unnecessary, that it's wildly um, um, unpopular. And he says that the military has been used sparingly in the last 80 years since World War II. Well, let's let's run down the list, right? There's Korea, there's Vietnam, there's Lebanon, there's Grenada, there's Panama, there's Iraq one, two, and three, there's Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Bosnia, Kosovo, Herzegovina. Uh, I could go on and on and on. So I don't think sparingly is the right word, representative. We can have a discussion about that later. But then he went on to say even something more offensive, if you can believe it. He said that none of these wars since World War II merited a, a declaration of war from Congress. Tell the 50,000 soldiers that died in Vietnam that their service and their sacrifice wasn't worthy and didn't merit a debate by their representatives in Washington, D.C. That's something I never thought I would hear. Um, but so that one, I, that one sticks to me. And then, uh, you know, finally was uh, Brad Barker. Um, you know, he said the uh, same thing that we live in a day and age where we're spreading goodness and wholesome and liberty and freedom and democracy and all the things we always hear, which isn't really true. Uh, he said, no declaration of war is necessary in today's world. Think about that for a second. This is a Republican member of the Montana legislature who has sworn an oath 
to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States say that it says that a declaration of war is not necessary. Well, which part of the Constitution does he get to pick and choose? Uh, you either support all of it or you support none of it. And we now know where Brad Barker stands, clearly it's with none of it. He supports all the pieces that he can use for talking points and none of the others. Yeah, those those were ones that stood out to me. And um, I, I think a lot of people are very upset with those representatives in, in general outside of this bill. And and the most ironic thing was that I, I don't know if it was Barker or Rusk, but it was one of the two. Um, after this bill failed, uh, they were defending a bill. They, they were a sponsor of the bill that followed it. Yes. And they stood up and they defended the Constitution. They said this is the constitutional thing to do. And um, I, I think Representative Deming, he, he became a little cynical after that. And uh, he was a libertarian before, at least um, philosophically. And he uh, I, I think that his experience in this, uh, I don't want to speak for him, has definitely made him more libertarian, though. I, I, I've definitely observed that. Um, but I did want to bring it back to General Ronick. Um, th there was a lot of frustration with the fact that he was able to dress up in, in uniform. You, you said that he shouldn't be there and he definitely shouldn't be, um, you know, in, that he himself admitted that he didn't want to be political. But I mean, he does have the authority uh, and, and apparently the ability to, you know, be in uniform, unlike everyone else who was in the room. And I think that that had somewhat of a psychological effect on the legislators where, you know, there were a bunch of veterans in, in jeans and then they're standing up next to Ronick and whatever other general they bring in the room. Um, and it was just such a disappointing point um, or disappointing thing to see. Uh, but I, I'd like to turn it to a more technical argument. Uh, Ronick brought up the funding argument and, and this was probably the most uh, frequent argument that I heard from legislators. And I think it was partially because they were trying to muddy the waters. And um, this was a scare tactic. Um, whenever the federal, whenever the state tries to do something that is in um, opposition to a federal policy, they will threaten that they will pull funding as a result. Um, and, and we saw this multiple times uh, this session on, on various different bills. And I think that there is a certain segment in the Republican Party that is aware of this tactic, but the freshmen are definitely scared by it. So um, will, if a state passes the Defend the Guard Act, um, and if they're standing alone, like if Montana were to pass the Defend the Guard Act and no other state were to pass it, is there a real risk that the federal government would uh, pull funds or maybe reallocate resources um, out of the state. So they just won't use the Montana National Guard, I think is one of the arguments that he made. Is that a real risk? It's a very real risk that they won't use the Montana National Guard to fight undeclared wars. You're absolutely right, because the, the bill will prevent it. But regarding the funding specifically, let's talk about that for a minute. Montana has stood up to the federal government and said, don't try and bribe me, don't threaten me with our own tax dollars. Who the hell are you, federal government? And I don't remember what the exact issue was, but it was going to be funding over an airport. And Montana stood up and said, you know what, we're going to pass this bill anyway, despite the threats of losing federal funding over our airport. And guess what happened when the bill passed? All that federal cheese still came into Montana, just like before, right? There's one thing the federal government does really well, and it's spend our money. They're not going to stop funding it. But the argument that the National Guard would lose the money and the state would lose the money if Defend the Guard passes 
it, it is kind of an empty threat. And here's how we know. The only branch of the military that is required to be funded and be in existence in, under the Constitution is the National Guard. That's the only one, right? The, the standing army, there's not a, it's not in the Constitution. The Air Force, not in the Constitution. The Navy to, open, to maintain trade lines and the National Guard for the common defense. And uh, Representative Paul Gozar from Arizona sits on the Appropriations Committee in Congress. And we were getting the same argument that we're, that we're talking about here in Arizona, that they were going to lose 350 or 550 or 17 billion, whatever the number is, it's inflated all the time, uh, dollars per year of federal money if Defend the Guard passed. And uh, our sponsor down there, Senator Wendy Rogers, called her friend, Representative Paul Gozar, and said, is this true? Could we possibly lose federal funding? Um, his first response was, so what if you do? And his second response was, absolutely not. It won't happen. And here's why. The National Guard Bureau, the Department of Defense, they don't get to decide where money goes. They submit budgets, proposals, plans, things like that. And then Congress controls the purse strings, the Appropriations Committee. That is Representative Gozar and his colleagues. They determine the money that is spent on the states for everything. And so he said that under no circumstances while he's on the Appropriations Committee, would there be a penny of National Guard funding in the state of Arizona that would be lost? And uh, as soon as that statement came out and that op-ed was published, and he actually put it in the con congressional record in Washington, D.C., um, the argument started changing from, oh, we're going to lose dollars to you're going to lose the ability to participate in armed conflicts. Well, God dang, that's the point of the bill, right? <laughs> Is we don't need to be participating in armed conflicts around the world unless our representatives have properly declared it. So I don't think it's a real threat. We've seen bigger threats than, than you know, complete defunding, which, you know, if, if it were to happen, I think that the state would rise up and the state militia, the state guard would still, you know, be there. We just wouldn't have the federal oversight. Um, but if that were to happen, we've seen other threats like in, in Wyoming when Liz Cheney was in Congress, she threatened, uh, she was actually calling members, uh, her, members of her staff were calling members of the legislature um, telling them that she would personally see to it that they would lose their C-130 aircrafts and she would send them to another state that didn't have Defend the Guard. Um, as a state legislator, as a citizen, as a sovereign, that should fire, put fire in your belly like nothing else, that your representative in Washington, D.C. is threatening you and bribing you with your own money. It's so offensive, the, the fact that we've gotten to this point where they can do it. And I kind of blame... Idaho for it. And, and here's why. This is a step backwards. In the 90s, uh, uh, Senator Dirk Kempthorne, the only piece of legislation this Idahoan, we'll call him, I have other names for him, but we'll leave it at that, that he passed in Washington, D.C., was the No Unfunded Mandates Bill. And what that bill said, in principle, was a good idea, that the federal government can't tell the states what to do unless they give them the money to do it. Well, D.C., being a swamp, turned that around and said, oh, if we give you the money, we can tell you what to do. They, they, they took the inverse of the bill. And so that's where we're at today is the federal government, they dangle money in front of us and they threaten us with our own taxes um, that if we don't do what they want, we don't capitulate, then they'll take away the money that is ours anyway. Um, just once, just once during COVID, I wish a state would have set, stood up and flipped the double bird to Washington DC and said, keep your damn money, keep it. We're gonna do things our way. Um, but no governor uh, in, this, in the country said no. They all took the cheese, they all took the threat, um, and they ran with it. And since that time, we've seen our rights and our liberties just continue to be eroded away because of money. And uh, so that argument, it, it's offensive to those that, that, that can see through the veil, um, and uh, it's powerful for those that can't. 
an argument that I was trying to make uh, to a lot of these legislators is uh, you had kind of referenced it um, about the Montana airports is that Governor Schweitzer um, years ago, it was a Democrat when they were trying to force the uh, real IDs on Montana. Um, he resisted and he actually called for a national movement of states to push back against real IDs. And we currently do not have real IDs in Montana. But at the time, they were threatening that Montanans would not be able to enter federal buildings. Um, they would make the process going through airports and TSA so exhaustive that it would cost airports um, so much money that effectively it would be like defunding airports. And they would also not allow um, Montanans to fly out of the state. There were so many threats that were lobbed at Governor Schweitzer and and he ended up resisting and he called their bluff. And he he actually said like he basically called on them in an NPR interview to to pull funds. He said, so be it. And then uh, another recent example that I, I tried to share with these legislators is that um, Governor Gianforte, the current Republican uh, governor within the state, he sent a letter to the ATF basically saying that he will not enforce the pistol brace rule in Montana. And the si similar arguments could be made about funding um, because you're uh, in contradiction with federal law. And yet we, we still go along with that. And then um, the most obvious answer, I think, is or, or example is the marijuana laws. Mar Montana now has recreational marijuana and similar arguments could be made and have been made about like highway funding. You know, that's how they originally imposed speed limits on Montana as well as they, they threatened to pull highway funding. And um, so it, it just goes to show that they will threaten and, and hold money hostage uh, in order to kind of use it as a cudgel to, to get Montanans and, you know, people in other States to uh, abandon their liberties. Um, but I, but I did have a, one more question about the funding. Something that I encountered was that there is certain funds that has already been appropriated to uh, the executive branch that they kind of have discretion over. Do you do you see that as a valid threat too? That um, Congress has appropriated money to the executive; they are giving it to the state, and there is a certain amount of freedom that they have to pull those funds. Is that a real thing? Because I, I haven't looked into it, and um, that is just something that I I heard. Uh, no, that's a that's a great question. The, the, it's that the, the executive discretionary funds. I can't remember the, the official title, but there's a there's an entire manual, a law that uh, that when we heard it in Montana for the first time, actually uh, in the committee hearing, the uh, the former JAG officer, that's the attorney. Um, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, he was the one that brought it up um, about the way that these funding contracts with the federal government, and the states are written and, and enforced. And the executive discretionary funds are, are mentioned in that code. We looked it up after that hearing because I hadn't even heard of it before. And it's so there's so much legal garbage in there and so much. Uh, it's just so loose that there's no real definition of what it means. Um, and that that's a that's another black eye in society that if we're willing to just give massive amounts of money to a to a branch of government with no oversight where they can do with it what they want. That's a problem. Right. We believe in those of us on you know that believe in individual freedom and liberty, the taxation is theft and giving it to somebody to spend any way they want um, is, is just an acceleration of that, of that theft. And uh, at some point, the citizenry of the United States is going to stand up and we're going to say enough is enough. 
Right now you take 35, 38, 40, 43, 45, 50, whatever the percentage is, depending on where you're at, um, of, our, of our money, and then you use it to beat us across the face. At some point, there's going to be a revolution, whether it's an economic revolution or a move away from a centralized currency or an actual revolution. It's going to happen. And nobody knows what that's going to look like. We're not calling for it, but everybody has a breaking point. And so when the executive has that kind of authority, has that kind of ability to direct funds, steer things based on their political ideology and their wish list. Um, we've got a bigger problem than worrying about how much money's coming back to, to buy tanks and helicopters and bullets and beans. I really like that answer because I found, in, at least on the House side, when, when we were preparing for um, the opposition's arguments, I really delved into Title 10 and Title 32. I, I became almost too familiar with it and I kept repeating it, but I think in doing so, we, we kind of ceded some moral ground to them. It was like, well, I am actually going to talk about the risks of funding here and treat it like a real threat and also treat it like I care about it. And something that I was very happy to find is that there were many legislators who, once I told them about this uh, argument that is being made on, on the opposition side, uh, that we might lose funding, they just said, I don't care. Uh, they, they hold funds over the state all the time and we end up compromising and I am done with that. And I, I do think that more Montanans are embracing that line of thinking. And I think that's how we need to navigate it in the future is to say, uh, what are we talking about here? What we're talking about are the lives lost overseas, you know, the enemies that we make because we're, we're bombing weddings in, in Afghanistan. Like that is what we're talking about. We're, we're not talking about whether we lose uh, helicopters and whether we can fly them for fun here in the state. And, and that brings up another point that they were, they were bringing legislators out in helicopters and wow. saying, Oh, you, you like this, you're, you're enjoying this. If defend the guard passes, uh, you will no longer have access to these helicopters. And, and what I wanted to say is, okay, you're worried about these helicopters leaving Montana right now. I mean, the current status quo left helicopters in Afghanistan for the Taliban after propping up the Afghan government for 20 years. So and if you and we did nothing about it, we just right. let it happen. No one raised a finger, a voice. It's nothing more than just a campaign stump speech now. Yeah. So if, if you're worried about, you know, helicopters leaving the state, maybe you should be worried about our equipment leaving the U.S. and then being left for our enemies to use or our alleged enemies to use. So it, it's just it, it's been such a fascinating journey learning about all this stuff and some really irritating um arguments have been brought up. I, I wanted to bring up just a couple more. Uh, one that I have here was was probably the stupidest argument that I, I heard. It was that the, the state has made a contract with the federal government oh through the Constitution. And if Montana passes the Defend the Guard Act, um, the federal government be, government would be right to pull funding because Montana has violated their contract with the federal government. Uh, what do you have to say about that one? Yeah, that giant slob of a man on the floor, how the house floor that said that uh, representative uh, starts with an N. Oh yeah. Um, Nicola caucus, I think is how yep, you pronounce yep, it. Yeah. Another choice word for him. Yeah. When he made that argument that the that the, if we violate this contract um, that we, sh that the federal government should defund the national guard, I don't know how that wasn't a soundbite on every major news network of that night. I have no idea how that escaped uh, the majority of Americans and news pundits. Um, but this, the contract that we have, let's be clear, right? Let's, 
if you take things back to the basics, to the building blocks, the contract that we have is that our creator, whoever you think that is, put us on earth with certain inalienable rights. We have those rights to life, liberty, and property, and we have given some of our rights and our authority and power to the federal government in a very limited and defined um, way. And the federal government can only do the things that we give them the authority to do. And they've taken that and usurped it and grown it and magnified it and let it run away because of a sleepy populace, because of a lazy citizenry, because of an immoral people. And I'm not talking about religious morals. I'm talking about human life morals, right? We, we have devalued our own existence to the point where our power that we've given to the federal government has become absolute. And if we're ever going to turn that around, the citizens, us, the sovereigns, right, the final authority, us from which all power in government exists has to be returned to the proper place. And the, the branches of government are meant to be co-equal. But I, I would argue if you truly understand um, natural law, the people's branch of the federal government should be the most powerful branch. It should be because it, it derives its power from us. The executive branch is clearly defined and limited by what we've allowed them to do. And the judicial branch is there to interpret it. And so if we ever gonna, if we're gonna get back to that position where this contract um, is, is talked about, we need to talk about the origins of the contract and the foundation of it. And they always come back with the same argument, the supremacy clause, federal law, Trump state law all day, every day. That's their argument, but they're missing one key component of the supremacy clause. And I'm gonna let you kind of touch on this because I heard you speak on it. The supremacy clause is only supreme to the states when, this is for you, I'm going to tee it up for you. Yeah, so Deming, uh, Representative Deming actually addressed this in his opening statements in the, in the House. And the, the very key part of the Supremacy Clause, they actually um, omit a certain part of the Supremacy Clause. So if you look it up, uh, there's usually ellipses and they don't share the completed thing. And it's because they are um, what, what precedes the Supremacy Clause is the enumerated powers. And it says, in pursuance thereof. Um, and it's referring to the Constitution. Say that in one pursu- more time. In pursuance thereof, in pursuance of the Constitution, um, all these federal laws are supreme. So the argument is that, well, um, the federal government is currently in violation with the Constitution because they have gone beyond their uh, enumerated powers. And we have the power as um, states to uh, hold them accountable for that. Um, mm-hmm. And yet Deming was the absolute best on that argument. And he just kept repeating it. And I, I think I, I started to hear other legislators make that argument on, on other issues like convention of state. So it was, it's kind of cool for uh, representative Deming to do that. On, on, on this, on this, when you post this, uh, this interview, if you put a link to Deming's speech where he's talking about that on the floor or in committee, it should be taught in every civics class across the country. Um, I want to take one second. I'm going to sidetrack here for a second. Anybody that doesn't know who, who Lee Deming is yet, learn his name, right? He, he was a man that he is incredibly humble. Um, he's not a veteran himself. And so he didn't even really feel comfortable taking on this mission, but he understood the principle and he understood the purpose. And uh, he understood the concept and his concept and grasp of the constitution and of natural law is um, better than most that I've ever met. And uh when he gave his speech, he changed the tone of the argument across the country. It's been a very hostile engagement up until the point that Lee Deming stood up and he was able to bring a, a level of humanism, of, of, um, of value of life into the argument and just bring the temperature down just a little bit. 
And uh, it was incredible. And someday I'd love to talk about the story about how you and, and Lee got to the point where you're at and how Montana got to where it's at, because it's one of the most wholesome stories um, that I've ever heard, especially in Defend the Guard movement. Um, and that's something we should talk about someday and maybe even make a little documentary about because it's just so powerful. But uh, yeah, well, yeah, what, what are Lee Deming's name? Well, what, he, what he's referencing there, I, I kind of mentioned it in, in the intro is um, that Lee was my civics teacher uh, five or six years ago now um, in high school, my honor civics teacher. And uh, he introduced me to figures like Tom Woods and is very much responsible for where I'm at right now. Um, he tells me that I actually told him about the Defend the Guard Act in class. I don't remember that, but it was definitely his doing, though. You know, he, he was responsible for putting me on the path to find people like Tom, you, Scott Horton. And um, I'll just share this story uh, to tell the audience a little bit about who Lee is. I, I was um, in, in class one day and I, I look up and I see the whiteboard and there's a photo of Abraham Lincoln uh, just hung up. It, I don't think it was there the day before. And there's just a little question written next to it that says, worst president ever, question mark. And he never addressed it. He just left it in the in the room. And he later told me that uh, he does that every year and that he has previously had students come up and they're like, yeah, you know, you know what? That makes me pretty, uh, pretty mad. And then they he just encourages them to have a conversation about it and points them in the direction of Tom DiLorenzo and the real Lincoln. And um, I later found out that uh, there was a Ron Paul photo in his classroom the entire year. And I, I was not a Ron Paul guy at, at the time. I, I would have supported Trump in, in the election. And I, I didn't know what libertarianism was. I, I didn't know who Ron Paul was. And I later went into the classroom and I'm like, wow. I mean, it, it was there the whole time. And and he really pointed me in the direction to where I'm at now. So definitely everyone should get familiar with that name. I think he's going to be around for a long time. And he's told me that he plans to bring Defend the Guard forward again. Um, but I yeah. Think the best part about Lee Deming is that he doesn't want to be there. He, he feels compelled um, almost to the point where he's, I, I'm going to be the one that talks sense into these folks but he's not arrogant like that. It's so hard to describe just the, the humanism that, that Lee holds. And uh, I, I don't even know if I've told you this story yet, but after we got done with the Montana um, hearing, we were on some major, I can't remember which network, we might've been after the Tucker interview. Uh, we got a, a sizable donation from a, from a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the military. And uh, I, I called him and thanked him for, for the donation the next day. And he goes, yeah, I was just glad to hear, you know, that my home state of Montana was, kind of leading the charge on this. And I told him the story about you and, and Lee. And he goes, wait a minute, Lee Deming. And uh, I was like, Oh yeah. Why? Well, he goes, Lee was my high school civics teacher 20, 30 years ago. I can't believe he's in the legislature. And uh, it was one of the, another just incredibly wholesome connection based on good work and good people. And uh, it's, uh, it just shows you that, that seeds are planted, not today. Right. The seeds that were the fruit that we're bearing today were seeds that were planted decades and decades ago by people like Lee. Yeah. And I mean, that's why it was a natural step for him to uh, run for office. I think even though he didn't want it, I mean, he had he had uh, contended with these ideas for decades, but he had also um, become a voice in the community and and people all over the country like 
like you said, someone from San Diego knows his name. So I, I think he'll just become a bigger name um, as he continues to involve himself in, in politics. And uh, he is very friendly to the Mises caucus too. Um, I believe he is or was a member. I don't know if he, he wants me to say that now that he's in the Republican party, but uh, it, it just goes to show you that he, he is um, a libertarian and, and he has a libertarian foundation, but uh, I, I did want to, with our time that's left, just address a couple more questions. Um, one of the arguments that I heard was just that uh, our, our readiness is important. Um, our, our military readiness is important. And uh, if we pass this bill, um, it will somehow impact our training capabilities um, and our readiness on the world stage. Makes for a great argument, doesn't it? It's, it's scare tactics, but let's talk about the truth of that. So on the National Guard, you know, the end day soldiers, the guys that go, you know, the one weekend a month and one, two weeks in the summer, you see on all the commercials, the National Guard is effectively part of the state militia. So the National Guard can be activated three different ways. They can be called up for state call up or state active duty for dealing with uh, emergencies in the state. It's funded by the state. It's under control of the state. Um, and, and it's you, you, you never leave the boundaries of your state and you're serving your community. The National Guard can be activated under Title 32 and Title 32 is federal call up. So that's when the, the president and Congress say we need the National Guard from Montana to help uh, with floods in, uh, in Missouri or hurricanes in Florida or you know, Katrina in the Gulf Coast. And that is that is federal service, federally funded, still under state control. Training overseas, though, when the National Guard is called up for active training, once they leave the country or once they extend past a certain period of time, they're moved to Title 10. Now, Title 10 essentially takes National Guard soldiers, you know, the police officers, the tradesmen, the mechanics, the teachers that serve in our community, and it takes them from the state and it federalizes them and puts them into the active military. They're essentially the same as any active duty military member. They get the same pay, the same benefits, the same discipline, the same uniform code of military justice, and they can go outside of the country for the purpose of training. They can um, they can be uh, they can go overseas and serve in combat if it's been declared properly, and they're federally paid for. And uh, so when when the National Guard trains overseas, when they train in the summers, when they do all of those things, those are active. Um, real responsibilities and duties of the militia. And Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 of the Constitution says that the National Guard or the militia can be called forward into federal service for three purposes, they can, to repel an invasion, to put down an insurrection, and to enforce the laws of the Union, right? And Title 32 uh, gives the National Guard the ability to be activated and to train domestically, anywhere in the continental United States, anywhere in Alaska, any of our territories, and if we want to go train overseas, let's say we want to go to Panama and train down there, that goes under Title 10. And so the, the readiness aspect of the, of, the, of the Defend the Guard argument always falls on this, that if the National Guard can't serve in combat, why would the Department of Defense waste time and energy training the National Guard? They're required to, right? The state maintains the discipline, the state maintains the records, the state maintains the enrollment, and they train officers. The, the, the Department of Defense and the, and the federal government is required for training and equipping the National Guard, especially when they're when they're called into federal service. So you get into this conundrum. Uh, the National Guard won't be able to go and train and, and be ready. And it's 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 a terrible argument. It's one that is used to uh, strike fear into the citizens that their National Guard won't be there in their time of need. 
But guess what? The National Guard routinely isn't there in their time of need because they're sitting in a tent during the COVID quarantine in Afghanistan, like the Oregon National Guard was when their state was burning two years ago. Or Hurricane Katrina, when the Louisiana National Guard, a, a brigade of civil engineers that build bridges and roads and levees and dams, when they weren't in Katrina in, or in, uh, in Louisiana, Hurricane Katrina, they were in Iraq building levees and roads and bridges and dams. Uh, and so the rest of the country had to respond. Or in Kentucky just last year, with the worst tornadoes that our country's seen in a long time ravaged their state, the Kentucky National Guard was in Ukraine or Syria. One of the two. I think they might have been in Syria guarding oil wells, which is just unbelievable, right? And so the readiness of the National Guard is being affected more by being called into these endless and undeclared wars, these conflicts, um, these wars of choice, these regime changes, um, than they are, you know, they're not home to be to provide the readiness and the defense that, that we need. So I think a better a better argument, if someone wanted to make it, would be that the National Guard um, should be overly trained. They should train more. They should go more places and train and be active and be ready, but for one purpose, to serve in their communities and to serve their nation domestically. And so that argument always falls on deaf ears, especially if you understand the way the dollars are spent and the way they're doled out and the, the federal authority um, that's used to call the National Guard into service. If you understand the law, their argument doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and in, in Montana, we have terrible fire seasons. And our Montana National Guard was sent to Syria last year, where they were actually attacked by ISIS in a prison break. So it, that just goes to affirm your your argument again. Um, now, another thing that I heard, this this wasn't heard as often, so I didn't treat it as seriously as the others, but um, is there any threat that the National Guard could be federalized through Title X and the executive keeps them federalized and then sends them to war? So the argument is that once they have become federalized, they are fully within the president's um, jurisdiction. And if the state were, tr were to try to enforce the Defend the Guard Act, uh, they wouldn't have any mechanism over that because they are currently overseas uh, federalized under Title 10. So, again, when, when we live in a society that's lawless, which we kind of are right now, where the, the federal government does whatever they want, it's always a very real threat. Here, here's my contention. If we are a moral and just people living by the laws uh, of our own society, it couldn't happen. But it, it absolutely could happen in today's society because we're not a just and moral people. So the threat of it happening is, is very real. I mean, look, President Obama went to Congress and pretended to do the right thing. He went to them and said, we need to go to war in Yemen and Syria. I need a declaration of war or an authorization of use of military force. And Congress said no. And the next day, President Obama took the military to Yemen and Syria. Right. So there's all things, that, all kinds of things you can't do that we just do. And what it's going to take is a, a state or a group of states or a, a movement of states to pass this Defend the Guard bill and put them on the spot, test it, right? It's going to take a state dragging Defend the Guard uh, legislation to the Supreme Court. It's going to take that. The states are going to have to, to, to bow up on the federal government if we're ever going to correct the ship. And uh, I was just in the office of, of a, a attorney general and his solicitor general just the other day talking about what we can do on the southern border right now with the National Guard. And they were trying to understand if the National Guard had a mission on the southern border. And uh, my argument was they absolutely do and they shouldn't go. 
because right now there's there's no command structure. Who's going to pay for it? Is it going to be a federal call? Is it going to be a state call? Are they going down to do paperwork? Or are they going to go down there as armed men with rifles doing a military mission? And until all those things are ever discussed and, 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 and determined, the National Guard shouldn't be the Republican Party's plaything on the border the way it was for the Democratic Party in the parking garages of Washington, D.C. after January 6th. And, uh, and so, yeah, it could happen. The, the president could federalize the National Guard and, and take them and then uh, for a, a legitimate purpose and while holding them over, take them overseas into a, an undeclared war. But again, this is this is how you break away from the war machine is one chip at a time, right? One brick has to fall. And uh, when that first brick brick falls, it's not a brick anymore. Now it's a domino. And we start to see other states um, that have said over and over and over again, we'll follow along, but we're not going to be the first. Well, God damn it, Montana said we're going to be the first, right? And then Arizona got right in line. And, and the movement just this year, we made more progress than we have in the previous five. And so next year, when we pass it through two houses and put it on a governor's desk, we'll see other states that are, that are willing to, to jump on board. And we've got attorneys general that have written about this and talked to us and interviewed that say, absolutely, this is strong. And if it were to pass, I would defend it vigorously in front of the Supreme Court. We're making, we're making the right move. And it's not in Washington, D.C., right? It's not fighting Raytheon on Raytheon's home court. It's doing it here in Boise, Idaho and, and Helena, Montana and Phoenix, Arizona, Bismarck, North Dakota. It's fighting it in the streets of, of the capitals um, with the power of the citizens. So, yeah, the threat's real, but... It's so, so is any other threat, you know, that, that we're watching and witnessing today. Now, the, the final argument that I want to talk about is the argument that the Supreme Court has already ruled on this um, and a governor cannot withhold a National Guard from the executive. Yep, that's a uh, that's absolutely true. Right. The Supreme Court did rule on this. The Montgomery Amendment passed in the in the early 90s and uh, and Governor Perpich said, I'm going to take my National Guard and not let them go to Honduras because we think Ronald Reagan's going to pave Central America so that the military can invade. And Perpich sued uh, the Department of Defense. And, uh, and the Supreme Court ruled and said that the governors of the states cannot object or interfere with the call of their National Guard um, for federal service if they oppose the location, the purpose, or the timing of, of what they're being called for. And then the Supreme Court was brilliant. And in that sentence, they said, for training. Pretty clear, right? So the, the, the purpose decision says that the National Guard can go anywhere that the president wants them to go for the purpose of training. It didn't even address combat um, in undeclared wars, right? Nobody would, nobody doubts that the National Guard can and should fight America's legitimate wars that are properly declared. The Supreme Court didn't even rule on that issue because it was such a crazy concept that the National Guard would be involved in wars in 17 countries all across the globe at any one time. But specifically uh, for training purposes, it was a legitimate concern. And the Supreme Court rightly ruled that the National Guard and the militia could be activated to be trained because that's a role and responsibility of the federal government in coordination with the states. And so when the purpose argument is thrown in our face, it, it's fun to, to, to talk back about it it's, if you've got time. The problem is we don't always get the time we need when when chairman of committees give us one minute each to stand up and say our name and that we support or oppose the bill. Not a lot of real thoughtful discussion um, uh, happens, which is why groups like but like you and the Mises caucus and our group defend uh, bring our troops home um, like uh, the, the little motley crew of, of rebel rousers that you've raised in Montana or our activists in, in, in other states 
why it's so important that we understand the power of grassroots. We understand the power of mobilization. You know, we're, we're past the time where we can wave signs at a Trump rally. We're past the time when we can make a funny meme and share it with our friends. We're past the time when we can sit on social media and you know clutch our pearls. It's time for real activism. And that's what we're doing. We're going around the country as, as this organization and we're teaching groups of citizens, 30, 40, 50, 100 at a time to do what we're doing, how to be effective in the legislatures, how to find a good champion, a bill sponsor, how to support them in, in all the things that they do, but especially when they're working on our bill, how to swing votes, right? How to, how to influence people. Uh, when we went to Arizona, we had three Republicans, three that supported the bill in the committee it was going to, three. The day before the bill went to hearing, three members and uh, using the tactics that we use and the pressure that we do with the petitions, the phone calls, the emails, the march, all of it, we were able to swing 100% of the Republicans from three to the entire Republican caucus to support it in just a few days. And a lot of that comes from the work of our field director, uh, Diego Rivera, who's, who's a master at, at applying technology, and, and I'm sorry, applying pressure where pressure is most effective. And it comes from groups like, like you and uh, with you know, the other people in Montana that just do such great work, you know, Henry Kriegel and, uh, and Sid Dowd and all the others that have just been active in their communities for so long. You build these networks of power and eventually the grassroots become grass, right? And eventually that grass becomes so tall that it sprouts seeds. And when grass goes to seed, look out, because now we're on a sod farm and that sod farm is starting to bloom. And uh, it's fun to watch uh, local champions like yourself um, take, the, take the lead on this thing and uh, really apply the tactics that we know to be effective. Uh, none of us can spend the kind of money that the uh, Uniparty spends on marketing and recruiting and paying salaries. But with a shoestring budget, a little bit of passion, and the gathering of the remnant bringing us together, uh, we're going to move mountains. We're going to change the world by by passing this bill. Absolutely, and I just want to let the audience know that um, this is very in line with the Mises Caucus's new strategy, the Project Decentralized Revolution that um, Aaron Harris and Michael Heiss have kind of uh, developed the the new strategy for the Libertarian Party going forward. And I'll link to this document if, if you haven't had the chance to read it yet, along with Deming's speech about Defend the Guard on the floor, um, because basically what it's doing is it's calling for the Libertarian Party to um, face reality and, and to realize that we are not going to win the presidential election anytime soon and that we have to build trust with our communities. It's a ground up decentralized effort We're we're all about. Uh, localism and and coalition building and and the reality is is that people are tied to their parties and it's a culture thing it's a trust thing and the way that we do this is through this grassroots effort um, here in Montana we were able to work with the ACLU as well as the Freedom Caucus the GOP Freedom Caucus and we we became pretty connected with both groups and um, one time I heard someone say how upset they were that the Libertarian Party was out front um, focusing on this issue because that will lead to uh, the Libertarians taking votes away from the Republicans in the 2024 Senate race. And I'm like, oh, well, it's because they're doing an effective thing. Is that like you're mad at them for for actually promoting liberty and, and a good issue? And uh, the more we do that, we're just going to build, build trust at uh, the local level. And that's what we're about. We're about issue coalitions and 
um, I, I think our effort in Montana is really a, a testament to that effort and, and that it is uh, possible. Um, I, and I'm looking forward to working on it again in the future. And, and I would encourage anyone uh, to get involved. And, and the Mises Caucus was instrumental in helping it get passed in the Arizona Senate. They, they made calls uh, to people's offices. And we're going to try to continue that process in, in all of the states. And I, I really do think that if, if the Mises Caucus were to repeat the strategy over and over again for various issues, um, all we would have to do is pool together, uh, you know, a couple hundred of us volunteers. There are so many in, in the Mises Caucus who could get together and, and call uh, legislators around the country and, and get them to vote in fa favor of the bills that we care about, whether it's legal tender laws or defend the guard. Um, food freedom. Food freedom. This is a very effective strategy, and we're already seeing the fruits of it Um states like Montana and Arizona. Um, so how can people uh, in the Mises Caucus get involved? In oh, absolutely. Caucus? There's there's a big movement right now. We're actually in Michigan. It's the last state of the year, probably. Maybe Rhode Island still uh, for Defend the Guard. But if you go to bringourtroopshome.us, I'm sorry, let me start over here. Defendtheguard.us forward slash phone bank. Sign up to be a phone banker. Diego will train you. He's really good at getting you one-on-one -on -one training. And I can't tell you how effective a phone bank is. I know it sounds silly and old school, but let me tell you what's old is new again, right? Um, politicians understand two, two, two sensations, two ways of communicating. They understand pain and they understand pleasure. And personally, I'm never going to be one to, to provide pleasure for many people in the legislature. Uh, I, I did praise Lee Deming today because he is a rarity, but we do like to deliver pain. And the pain comes in forms of hearing from, from demographics, hearing from their, from their uh, constituents that they're not happy with their performance, from taking donor dollars away from them by being vocal, um, by calling their donors and, and, and encouraging them to ask for refunds. We know how to make things hurt for politicians and we're getting quite adept at it. So sign up on the, on the phone banking efforts. Um, we also have a political leadership school that we, we're a traveling show. Uh, three of us come, we'll, if you have 30 or 40 people, you'll put in a room on a, for eight hours on a Saturday. We'll fly out there and we'll host a school and teach you that what we do. We'll teach you the tactics and the, and we'll train you and uh, we'll follow up with you and help build this army. And like you said, Liam, there, it's not just this issue. This works for all issues, right? This works for every liberty issue you can think of. Um, and, and we may not be aligned on everything. Some of us, the border may be an issue. Some, you know, taxation might be, you know, sound currency, but liberty is liberty, right? And any little piece of liberty regained um, is a move in the right direction because liberty lost often is liberty lost forever. And so we have to do something to put the brakes on. And it's going to take a small band of rebel rousers who are outcast from their own parties, whether it's Republican or Democrat, are going to have to be the ones that come together and unite and collectively find our brothers and sisters around the world who are in hiding from the political game and reignite them, bring them together, build this network and help one another in this very united groundswell effort. And uh, there's nothing more powerful than the groundswell from the grassroots. And it makes politicians shudder. And they'll do everything they can to buy our, our appeasement. They'll, they'll give, grant us access. Uh, they'll, they'll give us trinkets. I've been offered so many damn political awards from volunteer of the year to activist of the year to uh, honorary astronaut of the century. I, I, they just throw anything weird at you they can to get you to shut up and go away. Um, but the box of trinkets dies over, over time. But what doesn't die is that, that lamp of liberty. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. It, it really means a lot. And like I said, it's a it's an honor to be able to work with you on this. Well, there you have it. I'd like to thank Dan McKnight for joining me and for all of his efforts at Bring Our Troops Home. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution and to our producer, Simon Kalpin. And thanks to you all who are subscribed to our email list and support the pack. Uh, you can do that over at takehumanaction.com.